Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, verses 18 through 25. Please open your Bibles and follow along. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through out all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaimed the gospel of his kingdom in healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by his demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. We are so thankful to have the opportunity to gather with all of you week in and week out. It is such an encouragement to hear one another sing, to confess together, to pray together, and to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word together. So as we approach this great text this morning in Matthew's gospel, let us go before the Lord in a brief prayer before we turn to the word. Lord, we thank you that you came and dwelt among us, that just as you extended this great call to these four fishermen many years ago, Lord, that it is the same call that you extend to us today. Lord, I pray that as we approach your word, as we seek to discern this text and to understand its true meaning for our lives and what it means to follow you, Lord, that you would give us great wisdom, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that we would rightly understand the truths of your word. Lord, I pray that you would take me a weak vessel, and I pray that you would work and do mighty things through the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, we give our time to you and the study of, our word, of your word. It's your name we pray. Amen. In the 1800s, there lived a man named John Patton. John was born into a Scottish family in Scotland, and he was the oldest of 11 children. His family was in the textile business, and so his father worked the trade and went on to train almost all of the 11 children to do the same. John was brought up in a loving home, where his parents loved all 11 children well, where they not only spoke and proclaimed the gospel to their children, but they lived it out with their lives to the point where even long after they were dead, when their children were in their 80s and 90s, they would still speak of the faithfulness of their parents. And so as John progressed in years and got into his teenage years, he would learn the family business, and he would also commit himself to academic study for several hours a day, and he was a bright young man with many prospects set before him. But there was only one thing 
that he felt that he could devote his life to. For as he put it, he said, I felt that my life consisted of lost souls who were constantly visiting and endlessly knocking upon my conscience. John felt a burden to go to the most unreached people groups in the world, the people that had never heard the name of Jesus or the free gift of grace that was available for them. And he felt that these lost souls cried out and knocked on the door of his conscience to where he could do nothing else but go and give his life to minister the gospel to the least of these and those that were on the very peripheral of the societal awareness. And so, he prepared to leave. He had a young wife. They had been married about a week, and they set sail for the South Pacific to go and minister to a people group where the gospel had never gone. They had never heard the name of Jesus before. This people group was also notorious for being cannibals. So when him and his wife arrived, his wife was pregnant, and the sacrifice, pain, and suffering began as they sought to minister to a people that had no interest in hearing about the gospel and had no love or affection for these foreigners who had come to give them the greatest gift that they could possibly give was to make them aware of Jesus. Three months into their missionary journey to these people, John's wife gave birth and the child died in the birthing process, and a day later, his wife also passed away due to complications and a fever. John would spend his days sharing the gospel with this lost people group, and he would spend his nights laying across the graves of his wife and his son so that the cannibals would not desecrate his family's grave. And all throughout his life, people would come up to him and say, John, why are you doing this? Can't you find a church in Scotland or in England and preach the gospel faithfully and have just as effective of a ministry? And John, in his journal, records one such instance where he says, Among many who sought to deter me was an old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument was always, The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! And at last I simply replied to him, Mr. Dixon, You are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in a grave where you will be eaten by worms. He said, I confess to you that I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, and it makes no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or I am eaten by worms. What is it that makes a person live this way? What is it that makes a person walk into a village of people that have never heard the name of Jesus who desire to kill and feast on them, and yet to continue to love them enough to give up all that they may know of the gift of salvation that is for all? Or what makes a widow who has nothing but two coins give it to the Lord? Or what causes a man to sell all that he has so that he can buy a field? The only thing that we can conclude from that is that it can only be that what stands to be gained is far greater than that which stands to be lost. The main idea as we look at this text in Matthew this morning is that our Lord has placed a great call on our life. We are called to follow Him, not only for our sake, but for the sake of the world. 
So if you have your Bibles and you're not already there, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew 4 as you'll be helped by having your Bibles open in front of you. And two weeks ago when we were last in Matthew's Gospel, we looked at Matthew 4, 17 where Jesus begins His preaching ministry with the words, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There is not a moment to waste. There is an urgency about our life and about Christ's mission. For he has begun his earthly ministry by preaching a message of repentance, turning away from sin and turning unto God, and now he is about the work of calling those to join him in his mission to seek and save the lost. And so that's where we pick up our text this morning as Jesus comes and approaches these four fishermen in Galilee. Matthew 18 says that while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. Now, we will bounce around this text this morning, and we will do our best to cover it in full, but we must start with this key phrase here in Matthew 19, where he says, follow me. Who is Jesus calling these unassuming fishermen to follow? How we answer this question is of supreme importance. For if we cannot answer this question, then our following will be misguided. For if we are not clear on who we are to follow, then inevitably we will fall into following the wrong person or thing. But Matthew does not leave us alone to figure out who this me that Jesus speaks of is, who Jesus is calling them to follow, but in the first few chapters of his gospel, he gives us clear indication as to who Jesus is and why he can call these men to follow. We will look at a few of them briefly to rightly understand the me in follow me. In Matthew 1.1, we see that Matthew describes Jesus as being the son of David. This was Jesus' messianic term. It was Matthew's way of saying that the one who has promised has come to save God's chosen people of Israel. It is a term that would have been well known amongst the Jews and a fulfillment of God's promise. But in the second part of Matthew 1.1, he also refers to Jesus as the son of Abraham. And as you'll remember, God promised to Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than there are stars in the sky and that he would be the father of many nations. Matthew is calling out in this moment that Jesus did not just come for the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, although he did certainly come for them, but that he has come for all nations and all people. Jesus' mission is universal. It is for all who would repent and believe. Matthew goes on in chapter 1, verse 21, to say that Jesus is the Savior from sin. Jesus has been identified as the one that God has promised from the very beginning of Genesis chapter 3, that He is the one who is not only coming to save the people from their sin, but He is the one who is able and who will save people from their sin. It is embedded in His very name that Yeshua or Yahweh is salvation, means that He will save. 
Matthew, again, goes on just two verses later to say that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, a name that is very common and discussed often at this time of year. For God has not just promised to save us from our sin in an impersonal way or, and then leave us to our own devices, but He has promised to come and be with us forever, that He has not abandoned us, but He has saved us, and He walks with us through the fire, through the wind, and the waves that He is ever with His people. He is God, Emmanuel. And the last thing that I will look at, although there's many that Matthew cites in these first couple chapters, so we won't hit on all of them, but the last one that I will look at and we will look at this morning is when Matthew turns our attention in Matthew 3, verse 17, to Jesus being called the Son of God. For I've shared the story in our previous two messages on Matthew that when Jesus was ready to begin His earthly ministry, He came to the Jordan to be baptized by John, and when He is baptized, He's brought out of the water, the dove descends, the heaven opens, and God in His kindness leaves nothing to the imagination, for He looks at Jesus and says, this is my Son. Let there be no confusion that this is the fulfillment of my promise. This is the one that I have sent. He is my precious and my only Son, and I give Him to you that you may be saved and redeemed by His great work. We see that when Jesus says, follow me, that the me in Matthew 4, 19 is everything. He is the ultimate. He is the promised one who has everything to offer and all authority by which to offer it. He is not someone that if you truly understand who He is, that you say no to, for He is the prize, the reward, the desire. He is worthy of all allegiance and all obedience and all pursuit. He is the author of all things, sovereign over all things, and it is Him who invites these four fishermen and all of us to follow Him. Is this how we see Jesus? For if we do not, then He will never appear worthy of giving up all to follow. For then, laying across graves of dead family members or giving up all we have to follow, this person will not seem worth it. It is only worth it if He is who He says He is, and we know who Jesus is. And equally, if we are not clear on what it looks like to follow, then we run the risk of knowing about Jesus intellectually, but never actually following Him. So now that we understand who it is that we are to follow, we must understand what this following looks like. And Matthew gives us a great picture in Jesus' interaction with these four fishermen in Matthew 4. For he's very clear, he says, that these brothers, both Peter and Andrew, and later in verse 21, James and John, are fishermen. Now, in this region of Galilee, being a fisherman was not the lowest of low or the poorest of poor jobs. In fact, it was a rather robust industry to be in, for so much of the economic standing relied on fish. 
It was a primary component of these people's diets. They used it to light lamps in their homes. They used it medicinally for things that ailed them internally or externally. This was not a fringe career. These men were not in poverty. They were not the wealthy elites, but they were somewhere in between, maybe what we today would say would be middle class or upper middle class. There was a significant amount involved in the work that they did, for to be a fisherman was most likely a generational family occupation, that their great-grandfathers taught their grandfathers and so on and so forth how to fish, and they were taught by their dad, as we even see that Zebedee is active in the business with James and John, and they will go on to teach their children to do the same. They have nets, boats, supplies, method of transportation for these fish. This is a robust vocation that they are a part of. We must also look at the unusual format by which Jesus calls these men to follow. It is not only a lot that He is going to ask them to give up, but it is also an interesting way in which He does it, because at that time in ancient Jewish and Greek cultures, it was not the disciples, or it was not the teacher, excuse me, that called the disciples, but it was the disciple that selected the teacher. For the teachers believed that the calling of being a disciple was such a weighty thing that they could not burden them by asking them to come and do it. The disciple must approach them on their own accord and say, will you teach me? But Jesus, in His radical call of these men, does not approach it that way. He simply comes to them and says, follow me. And as we can see from this context, the call came at a great cost. Jesus comes to them in the middle of their workday. They clearly have work to do. Peter and Andrew are casting their nets. James and John are tending to their nets. And Jesus comes up to them in the middle of the stink and the sweat and the work of the day and says, follow me. Following Jesus can involve great physical cost. It can involve, like it did for these men, leaving our livelihood, our income, our security, our future. It can also come at great relational cost, for we see that James and John left their father. They left their friends. They left their homes. They committed to laying down their lives for others loving and giving of their lives for their enemies, and pursuing those who hated them. I was listening to a podcast one time by John Piper, and he has a podcast where people can call in and ask questions, and a lady called in and said, how are we to count the cost when we don't know what it will cost us? And I thought that John Piper responded wisely by saying, you must assume it will cost you everything. We don't know what the cost will be, but we must assume that it will be everything, and we must be willing to give up everything for Christ. For He says that if anyone would follow after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. He says in Matthew 19, 29, that everyone who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or child or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold. We as disciples cannot simply say that I'm good following Jesus up until this point, but once it costs me this, 
then I'm out. For that is not true discipleship. That is not truly following Jesus. But a true disciple looks at these costs, looks at the losses, and as Philippians 3.8 says, we count it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We even see examples of this in our own church. For a few weeks ago, we celebrated the baptism of a family who came out of the Mormon church faced with total rejection of friends, family, and a former way of life, and they proclaimed that Jesus is worth it, that He is worth losing all to follow after Him, no matter what it may cost. So in light of this cost, in light of what Jesus puts before these men, what is their response? And we see in verse 20 and also in verse 22 that immediately they left their nets, they left their boat, they left their father, and they followed him. These men did not pause and say, Jesus, I'm having the best quarter of my life. Can I just hang in there for a little bit longer, make some money, maybe I can fund the ministry, and then we can go do something? They didn't say, you know what, we're meeting at Starbucks and we're studying the Torah and it's going pretty well and I think I need to hang in there a little bit longer. They didn't say, you know what, Lord, can I liquidate all of this stuff that I have so that if this whole following you thing doesn't work out, I can go and buy all my stuff back and have a way to provide for myself? No, they didn't do any of this. They simply went. But why? Because Jesus is worth it. His glory is seen in our obedience, that through our obedience we express something that is true about Jesus, and that He is worthy of total abandonment, that He is more precious than any possession that we have or can obtain, that our comfort and security are worth nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Him, that even amidst pain, Loss, suffering, persecution, uncertainty, and even death, even with all of those things combined and factored in, Christ still comes out on top because He is worthy. Christianity isn't an association. It's a life-altering transformation. And when we follow it implies that we have a purpose, a mission, and a guide. The call that Jesus extends to these men is the same call that He extends to us. For as I said earlier, that if any of us would come after Christ, we must deny ourselves, put off the things that we would cling to. We must take up our cross, this great burden, and we must follow Him. For we are a wandering people, but God invites us to be followers. Are you following Jesus today, or are you simply watching Him work from afar? But following Jesus, as we see in verse 19, is not simply about us, but it is about others. For Jesus says, follow me, the command to these four men specifically, and then 
he gives them a promise of, I will make you fishers of men. We even see that in verse 23 through the end of 25, that he went to Galilee, healing every disease, every affliction amongst the people, and that they brought him all who were sick and afflicted of various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Jesus makes his purpose clear that we see what his primary concern is, and that is with saving those who are lost. He is not simply calling us to a life of following him on speaking tours and lecture series and theological debates. He is calling us to seek the lost. For in his calling of us, he demonstrates not only a great love for us, but a great love for those around us. He loves your coworkers. He loves your family. He loves your friends. He loves the total strangers that you come into contact with. And he loves them so much that he has given them a light. You. He did not send you to save them from their sin, let's be clear, but he came and called you so that you might point them to the one who does save them from their sin. We are not responsible for salvation, but just like these fishermen, we are called to put our lines in the water and allow the Lord to worry about the catch. One of Jesus' greatest demonstrations of love for those around you could very well be you, that He has sent you to your neighborhood, to your schools, to your work, to your friends, to Starbucks, to Costco, to wherever, for the sake of bringing a bright light to those in darkness. Jesus came for all people. And as his ministry continues, as we will look at as we continue to press on through Matthew's gospel, that he goes to the religious elites, of course, but he goes to those who are afflicted, those who are sick and oppressed and tormented. If you are here today and you have not turned from your sin and turned unto God, then I plead with you not to delay. For we do not know when the Lord is returning, but we do know that tomorrow is not promised. And if you are here today and you have turned from your sin and you are following God, then I would ask, are you truly following Him? Are you people of action? Are you just as concerned with the things of Christ as He is? For the time is urgent and our calling is important. Follow Jesus and become fishers of men. As we bring our time to a close, I have three brief points of application for us this morning as we reflect on some of the things that Christ is calling us to in this verse. The first point that I would set before you is that it is not enough to simply follow God in death, or excuse me, it is not simply enough to trust God in death, but we also must trust Him in life. As Christians, we trust God to save us from our sin and to lead us into life everlasting, but do we trust Him to have His way with our life as we live it now? 
we push back, we run, and we disregard the things that He has called us to. And when we do this, we proclaim not that He is worthy, but that He is needed. But He is both worthy and needed. Let us demonstrate that by our life. The second point of application that I have for us is that we are not called simply to learn, but to be active. We are to be a people who are known by their fruit. We are not to be stagnant, reserved, or on the sidelines. And I want to be clear about something that may be a bit of the elephant in the room because I feel like when messages like this are preached that oftentimes some people can feel that either the preacher is saying, sell all you have, move to the most remote part of the world that you possibly can find on a map, and serve the people that you find there. And the reality of it is that may be the call for some of you. Some will be called to that, some should go to that, and we all should care about that work. But your calling may be here. It may be in McKinney or in Prosper or in Frisco. No matter where your work is, you are called to be active in it. You are called to be just as active in McKinney as you would be on the mission field in China. For all around you, there are those that are lost those that have not heard the name of Jesus and who are in desperate need of the grace and the, save and the salvation that only He offers. And the last point of application that I would bring to us before we close is that we are to follow in community. For Jesus did not call one, but He called many. This is why He gave us the church. And I think it's important that we take a moment to recognize that this season is hard for CRC. There is hurt, there's uncertainty, and there's vulnerability. Community is hard. But Jesus, as we know, is worth it. And He has given our church and churches all around the world a great gift in each of you that we are here to love, to pour into, to encourage, to challenge, to lay down our lives for one another. That is what Christ did for us, and that is what we in turn are called to do for one another. Engage in your community groups. Engage in Bible studies. Show up and be active that we may have strength and courage to press on. Do not leave these things to others. Live out your calling to follow Christ. Follow Jesus, for He is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that while we were dead in our sin, that You sent Christ to live amongst us to die the death that we deserve, to pay the price that we could never pay, that we may know life with You everlasting. And Lord, just as You called these four fishermen to follow You, that same call extends to us this morning. Lord, I would pray that we would see You 
in all your glory and splendor and holiness, and that we, with our lives, would say we can do nothing else but give all that we have to follow you. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Equip us for this work that you have called us to. Equip us as a church that we would encourage one another as we press on and run our race that we may cross our finish line and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we love you and we give you all praise, honor, and glory. Amen.